Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Now, here's a story and a man that I just know will touch many of us tonight. A man who says God brings miracles out of messes. He should know. Retired Chief Inspector Gary Raymond's life has been full of highs and lows. He's been through more than most of us could imagine or bear. You might say it actually started before he was even born, when his mother almost aborted her pregnancy with him. His father suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder from the war, and as a result, drank and gambled heavily, which left little money for the family. But that all eventually changed. Not before the family pressures led Gary's mum to become so depressed that she planned to murder her five children before killing herself. What Gary calls divine intervention from God stopped her carrying out those killings the night before. Years later, Gary joined the police force where he had an amazing range of experiences and a highly distinguished career. Among other things, Gary is now the chaplain to the Police Post-Trauma Support Group and a member of the Christian Police Fellowship. Gary Raymond, it's my privilege to welcome you to Open House. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming in. Tell me about your earliest memory of your family, Gary, and what it was like growing up in that family. Yeah, there were difficulties there. Uh, My mother and, and father met at a dance in Stockton in Newcastle, and uh, my mother became pregnant with me that night. And uh, it was amazing that when she found out she was pregnant, she just panicked and thought, well, I'm going to be rejected by family and friends and I'm not going to go through this and didn't tell her mum. And so she actually uh, got some money from a a loan from the bank, uh, told the bank manager she was going to buy a push bike to go to work and she booked in for a termination. She was going to abort me. How old was she? Um, she was only uh, in her early 20s at that point in time. And so she booked into an abortion clinic up in Cooks Hill in Newcastle. She was actually in the waiting room and there was a list on the wall of the ladies' names there and her name was next. And uh, this apparently very, very large, cranky nursing sister came out with a very disgruntled attitude and said, Miss Harris, Miss Harris, you're next. Come on, Miss Harris. You know, emphasising the miss so that everyone in the waiting room knew that she was... It's very uh, big shame in those yeah, days. Yeah, pregnant yes. out of wedlock, huge yeah. shame. Yeah. And the door opened and my mum walked in there, saw the team waiting and then suddenly just had this enormous feeling of heaviness and, uh, and sort of driven then to turn around and run. She actually ran out of the room, out of the clinic and she hid in a local park behind some sort of bushes for a while and cried all day. And then finally went home and told her mother. And married that man? Yeah. Um, she couldn't remember much about him and finally found him because her mother said, well, go to the country and have this baby and have it adopted out or uh, find the father and see what he's going to do. So she found my dad up in New Lambton and told him, look, I'm pregnant with your child. And, you know, my dad, without a, a second of hesitation, said, well... Um, Beryl, uh, what's your last name? Um, I'm going to marry you to give uh, our child uh, its dad. And they were married within two weeks of that conversation. Wow. How would you describe your dad? Look, he was a a soldier, uh, a tough man. He lost his dad very early in his life 
due to p- tuberculosis. I think his dad was 32. So his mum brought up the three kids, my auntie and two uncles. And he was a very punctual. If there was a train leaving at seven, we'd be on the platform at six. He was a um, matter-of-fact sort of fellow, yet loved his sons around him. Four boys? Yeah, well, what happened was, of course, I was born, and uh, then later they decided to have a girl, and Neil was born. They decided to have a girl, and Kevin was born. They decided to have a girl, and Trevor was born. <laughs> they decided to have a girl, and Brian was born. So I ended up with five boys. Tough for them to cope in that family. Yeah, look, he had a, my dad had a job in a, um, as a storeman, packer, and uh, wasn't a lot of money, but sadly he began to waste a lot of it with gambling and drinking and um, going out with his mates a lot. And so we ended up in dire straits often. We had nothing to eat and very little uh, to, to play with. And, yeah, things went really bad. So bad that your mother, as I said before, contemplated taking you all out. Are you yeah. able to share that with us? Yeah, look, Dad came home one night and he threw the pay packet in the garbage. And Mum thought, what are you doing there? And she got it out and unscrewed it, but it was empty. He'd blown the whole week's wages and uh, and she said, grabbed a knife out of the kitchen drawer and she said, Jack, if this keeps up, I'm going to kill myself and all of these boys. Well, my dad looked and laughed and said, you know, stop being stupid. And so that was, that was the night my mum hatched that she would in fact kill us, the five boys, and then kill herself. And she nearly did. She planned it. She went up to Dr Murphy and got uh, sleeping tablets, uh, giving the excuse that, Oh, she couldn't sleep, but that was to uh, put in orange juice to put the boys, us, to sleep and herself before she turned the gas on to gas. She rolled up towels to put in the in the jam, the doorways and windows. She wrote a note and hid it, and she marked on the calendar an X down in the corner on the Sunday when she knew that my dad would be at cricket, playing with his mate's cricket. She was going to do this deed. And you knew nothing of that? Well, I sensed that something was wrong. And a matter of fact, used to, uh, you know, keep an eye on my brothers and often kept the window of the bedroom open in case she came in. I thought she was going to stab us. And then she came in, I was going to get myself and my brothers to jump out of the window. How old were you? Uh, I was only about uh, eight at that point in time, coming on nine. And so I sensed that something was gravely wrong and there was often uh, arguments and uh, we'd hear yelling and screaming and uh, throwing of things and kicking things and and I thought this is going to happen and I was just waiting for the day. So how come it didn't happen? Well, on just a couple of weeks before my mum was due to do this murder-suicide, Lieutenant Fisher from the Salvation Army came along and her surname now is Lawrence, knocking on doors asking can your children come to Sunday school? The Salvation Army is starting one. And so my mum sent us along. I think it was just to get rid of us for a while. <laughs> sure. because, uh, you know, my, my dad wasn't home that often and she took the full load. But So we started going to Sunday school. And I, I remember the first time I walked in there, the Sunday school teacher said to me, Jesus loves you. And I thought, whoa, because the only time I'd ever heard that name was in the context of swearing yes. or, or something being uh, thrown, you know, or a door kicked or whatever, and that surprised me. And then she said an interesting thing. She said, Jesus came to rescue you from your sin. Now, thinking back now, she had no idea that one day I would be in the elitist police rescue squad. And did that, I suppose, through you have an impact on your mum? 
Look, it did. We had a church anniversary, a core anniversary, and all the churches in the neighbourhood come and there's a big night on of, um, you know, singing songs and doing little dramas and skits and uh, and solos and all the rest of it. And um, my mother came. Now, keep in mind, this was the Saturday night before the Sunday she was going to kill herself and all of us. And she was sitting there. She said, untouched. There was a, a fellow there, Colonel Spillett, or Brigadier Spillett, I think he was then, a Salvation Army officer, was like the MC, if you like. Now, at the end of the night, everyone applauded. It had been a great night. And you just, the heaviness was on his heart. And he said this. He said, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a great night tonight. He said, the gospel's been brought forward. He said, uh, and lots of talent here tonight by people from the army and the churches. But he said, God the Holy Spirit who indwells within me, is giving me a prompting that someone here tonight needs two things. Number one, you need to know that your sin and all of your wickedness has already been forgiven by Jesus on the cross. And secondly, whoever you are, you need to know that he wants to heal your hurts. Now, the next thing he said was profound. He said, God has told me, whoever you are, that this will not wait to tomorrow. You have to come to him tonight. Tomorrow will be too late. Come forward and receive all that Christ has for you. Well, my mum said, as soon as he said that, I knew that was for me. God was actually communicating with me. And so she stood up, put her overcoat over the seat and ran forward. And she was screaming and crying and she knelt at the front and a lot of ladies from the uh, congregation went forward and I remember her tears just flowing on the floor and as ladies stroked her hair and uh, and she gave her life to Christ and accepted his offer of salvation and his healing. What a stunning moment. Yeah, it was. I was on the platform not knowing what was going on. But a beautiful Christian man, Len Randall, came up and said, it's okay, boys, Don't, mummy's all right. What she's doing is she's talking to Jesus. You know, yeah, so that was a great moment that I still remember today. What became of your father, Gary? Next morning, of course, we front home and Dad gets out a bit hungover and uh, a bit sore in the muscles. So he was a great cricket player. And uh, my mum sat him down and, on us and said, Jack, I want to tell you what I was going to do today. And he looked and she took all the things out, the pills, the note, uh, the, the, the towels, and she'd made like a hose thing from the, going to put from the coal gas stove to underneath the table, which she was going to make us like a cubby house to put us in. And she said, but that's what I was going to do today, but I'm not because last night, um, God called me and I answered and now I've received him and you're going to receive him and all of our family is going to be totally renewed. But my dad reached across and held her hands and he said, Beryl, did I get to this? He said, oh, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I didn't think it would ever get to this. Please forgive me. Give me another chance. Well, my dad stopped drinking at that point in time. All the wages came home. He put, even put some of his mates aside and became best mates to all of us five boys. And uh, he became a wonderful dad, a great husband. 
And uh, it wasn't until later in his life uh, when he got lung cancer. And another Salvation Army officer said to him one day, it was Colonel Shop, and Colonel said to him, Jack, look, I know things are a bit rough early in your, in your life, but guess what? You know, you came good, but would you say you've lived most of your life as a good man without Christ? And he said, yes, Colonel. And he said, well, do you want to die without Jesus, Jack? And when he wants to forgive you, and already has forgiven you, and he wants you to have eternal life with him. And my dad knelt in the lounge room of our home and was uh, born again. That is, the old Jack went and the new Jack came. Yeah. People question whether miracles still happen. And I'm going to say this is the stuff of miracles. You're right, Lee. Look, God's very active. People, because they don't see him or hear him audibly or be able to touch him physically, number one, some foolish people think he doesn't exist. Others think that if he does exist, he's remote. But no, you know, in the Bible, everything referring to God is him being active today. Yes. He's active right now, never sleeps nor slumbers. And the miracles, and if only we just receive what he's trying to do, and that is have a personal relationship with us. On Open House, we're with retired Chief Inspector Gary Raymond and his remarkable life. Gary, let me fast forward the years to when you joined the emergency services. Why did you do that? When I was four years old, I was in a bus and the bus came to an abrupt halt and everyone sort of went to the windows and were gasping. Oh, no, oh, my God, you know, they were saying. And I looked out and there was a fellow who'd been knocked off a motorbike by a car and he, he looked critical and... Uh, I was staring out there. My mother said, Gary, get back on the other side of the bus. So I snuck up the back and I was looking out of the back window at this this accident scene. I saw the police turn up helping him and then I saw the ambulance turn up and I decided at that moment, age four, that's what I wanted to do. Age nine, I joined St John Ambulance as a cadet and uh, learnt my first aid there and I was running around, age age nine, running around the neighbourhood helping people who had been injured or sick. And then as I gradually um, left school, I decided to go into the ambulance service. They had a cadetship going, so I moved to Sydney. Did that for uh, or training in Royal Prince Alfred Hospital for two years and then three years on the road. But on the road, working in ambulance, I worked alongside the police rescue squad. And the late Sergeant Ray Tyson said to me one day, we've got a fella over the cliffs here, he's got a broken back. Would you go down with the police rescue guys and help him? I said, yeah, sure. So I descended the cliff with the police rescue guys, packaged up this fellow with a broken back and brought him up. And uh, Ray Tyson said to me words similar to, we could do with you. Why don't you resign from the Ambos? So I resigned from the Ambos, went into the police, did some general duties in Redfern first, which I really enjoyed, and then I went into police rescue. Seems so simple. Yeah, it's just <laughs> like that. And so... Uh, yeah, it was just an amazing time with those men and uh, thoroughly enjoyed what they taught me and the ability to go into situations that um, other emergency service personnel had given up. Quick, call police rescue. Yes. It was a great privilege. You became a suicide negotiator. Yeah, part of police rescue's tasks was um, suicide crisis negotiation, that is, going to the gap. We went to buildings and bridges and towers and and school roofs and jails and everywhere where people threatening suicide, we 
um, specialised in people threatening to jump, although we did other types of threats as well. And, uh, yeah, I uh, retrieved uh, probably over 200 people, a record show, and sadly and regrettably uh, some didn't, you know, submit to my negotiation and actually jumped to their deaths. And uh, But others who I retrieved, um, I actually... Uh, you know, minister to them some love and the gospel and actually have become committed Christians and their lives took an incredibly U-turn from just about to jump off the gap to now leading many other people to Christ. And you're still in contact with some of them? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, one particular fellow and uh, he's a great mate now and he was highly suicidal after a marriage breakup and, uh, you know, I, I said to him, I said, look, there's only one answer for you really uh, to know that Jesus has a plan for your life beyond this crisis and uh, with crisis often we we sort of get putting the brake on and we stop in the crisis when God says no come on look I know this is an awful thing happening to you take your foot off the brake put your foot in the accelerator and, and let me take you where I want to lead you and uh, and so he did that he allowed Christ to take over his life and now he's uh, just doing really well and uh, bringing many others to the Lord as well. For there is always tomorrow. There is always tomorrow, yes. Fast forward again to the Granville train disaster, the 18th of January, 1977. Tell us about the time you first heard about that. We were at the rescue base and uh, as we did each morning, we thoroughly checked our equipment and uh, did a little bit of training. Then we were just in for a cup of coffee just a bit after 10 past 8 in the morning. And um, the alarms went off and, and they said that we've got a bridge fallen on a train. So, mm, oh, that's interesting. So we're on the way out there and, and we didn't know whether it was people injured or trapped at all. But each minute we're on the way out to Granville, to Bolt Street Bridge there, uh, there was an update and it was one injured, then two, then three, then tens and twenties and, and then hundreds. And so we knew we're in for a big one. Ultimately, how many people lost their lives and how many people There was 83 injured? lost their lives, yeah, 80 at the scene and three later on in hospital. There was about 213 people injured all over the tracks and from carriage one in particular. And uh, But when we got there in rescue one with the late Sergeant Bill Fay, we stopped on the northern side, got out, looked over, and, and Bill said this, he said, Gaz... I don't know what we've got, but let the ambos and the doctors and nurses look after them, that is, the injured. He said, I want you to get down there, get in those carriages underneath that bridge. And he said, tell me what we've got, mate. And so in military and police terms, that's called a reconnaissance. Yeah. But when I got there, I crawled in under the bridge and the side of the train was sort of burst out. So I'm stepping through the window frames and looking sideways to my left and there was people crushed and lost their lives there. And what's going on in your mind at that moment? Well, number one, looking for dangers. That's what's going through my mind, looking around to see what you know what was stable and what wasn't um, because we need to look after our personal safety as well. But, and then looking at the left was, how am I going to get through that mess in to see if anyone's alive in there? And so I, I climbed up through the side of the carriage uh, between the girders and crawling through those who had lost their lives, squeezing through those bodies to find live people in the in the centre of the train. And you're quite able to cope with seeing such human wreckage. 
what you do is you uh, you certainly do you because you're trained on highly trained and we were doing rescues every day but here we had numbers and you look at it very forensically that is I've got a job to do yes there's a mess around me but who's alive in here and you're driven by literally putting those who lost their lives aside and pursuing those who might be still alive you can save tell me the story of Debbie who was one of the people you saved yeah look I crawled in there and uh, <clears throat> there was a, a few ambulance officers there as well and uh, one of the ambulance officers crawled past a number of people and uh, I sort of came in just behind him and I found this young lady, she was a tall blonde young lady, she was squashed up at the end of the carriage three and the, the end of the carriage had caved in on top of her and pushed her down and you could. Uh, she was sort of in a ball, if you like, with her face pressing down on her chest and... Um, the ambulance officer thought she was dead and he kept going. But I, I'm in the habit of checking pulses as well. So I was checking the pulses of those around me and sadly didn't find any. When I got to Debbie, suddenly I found she had a carotid pulse. It was fairly tachycardia. It was fairly fairly fast. But she'd been given up for dead. Yeah, she'd been given up for dead. So I realised that she had a pulse but she wasn't breathing. She had a an obstruction of her air passage. So... I thought I took a breath and gripped my teeth. I thought I've got to straighten this girl's airway out. To do this, I'm going to have to twist her head and her neck and uh, hyperextend it—that is, put a bit of traction on it and uh, lift her jaw forward to get it, get that airway open. So, as I said, I gripped, gripped my teeth and I got hold of her head, turned it, and I could hear the crunching of the neck bones. You know, it was really hard, but it was something. The more traction I put on, the better it was turned her head sideways, lifted it back, lifted the jaw forward. And look, people say, uh, you know, people in the emergency services, you see some terrible things, that's true. But no one ever asked you, um, do you, you know, do you smell some terrible things? Do you hear horrible sounds or silences, touch terrible things or terrible things touch you? That's called the sensory stimuli. But I heard one of the most beautiful sounds that I've ever heard in policing. Debbie taking a huge big breath. <gasps> and she started breathing on her own when I held her airway open. And uh, and she got a little better, better colour, although she was critically injured with the crush syndrome. And she had a, a leg which was just about traumatically amputated, so I was controlling the bleeding there as well. Uh, so holding her airway open, controlling bleeding, um, before medical help came in. And she was saved. She was, yeah. She started breathing and is breathing today. And you're still in touch with Debbie to this day? Yes. Look, as we were rescuing her, um, uh, later on she had crush syndrome and other things. She had what we call an acute abdomen. Her abdomen was showing signs of injury and she sort of realised something was wrong and she said, is something wrong in my tummy? I said, well, I think there is. Keep still and we'll do something to help you with that. She asked her, I suppose, a question only an injured young lady could ask, and she said, will I be able to get married and have children after this? Like, what's going on in my belly? And I said, oh, only God knows. A bit of a throw-off line. Years later, when after we got Debbie out, we're on the show Where Are They Now? And I came onto the studio, and Debbie was there, and uh, someone was holding a little baby that presented the little baby to me and said, this is Debbie's daughter, Shelby, 
And then somebody said then, God knew, Gary, God yes. knew. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty true, you know. Uh, sometimes we don't understand what's going to happen or what is happening to us. But the Word of God says we can understand him fully, but what he does and doesn't do is often a mystery to us. So trust him fully and just understand the trusting on the way he works. In those tumultuous days in the police force, in the Ambos, you didn't know that God. How did you come to know him? Look, I learned about him at Sunday school. Yes. and um, But then sort of saw the big bright lights of Sydney. And then going into police rescue was a very elitist culture. And it was a play hard, work hard there. And uh, we used to, you know, have a drink or two and, and partying. You know, we really just... And it was almost like... And we used it as an excuse to say, well, world, if uh, if we worked hard getting up bits and pieces of someone today, then tonight you're going to really, really let me party. So that lifestyle was part of who we were. And uh, and during that time, uh, I was, as I said, partying. I met a young lady. We eventually got married, but um, sort of drifted apart. And one day she came home and said, see the bloke in the car out there? I said, yeah. She said, I'm going to live with him. Well, it was like a freight train and there'll be someone listening now and who knows what it's like to have a broken relationship that you didn't want to happen. Mm. And they know what it's like to be hit by this this freight train, as I call it. Anyway, I was walking around that night, the 29th of November, 1979, and I'm trying to, trying to get the strength of a police officer in me. And I'm sort of walking around, hitting my fist, saying, come on, you'll be right. Come on, pull yourself together. Pull your, you can do it. And I'm looking in the mirror at one stage and saying, keep calm, you can do it. Don't worry about this, you'll get through it. Yet underneath, I was just becoming empty. And I felt like barbed wire in my throat. I felt like my stomach was turning upside down. No hope, no future. Then my Sunday school days started to come back, where I remember my Sunday school teacher said, Jesus came to rescue you from your sin and you're hurt. And I thought, there is someone to rescue the police rescuer, and his name is Jesus. And with that, I fell down on the floor on my knees and elbows, and I screamed out, you know, Jesus, I need you now. And with that, just felt a real peace came over me and a real uh, assurance of forgiveness. And I found out later, of course, that he'd already taken my sin record on his record on the cross so that my record could be free. And, uh, well, that's when I gave my heart to Christ. What would you say life has been like for you since then? Firstly, I gained a new insight into suffering. Like, for example, God gets the blame for everything. But that new life gave me an insight. When I read the book of Genesis, I see there that everything, there was no pain, death and suffering before Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. Then the whole thing crashed. So I had a different outlook looking at God's word on suffering. Mm. And the other thing, we read the other end of the Bible, where he's coming back to fix it. Jesus is coming back. Now, I'm not a theologian, a minister or a priest. I'm a cop and I've been a detective, designated detective. And I know his word is fully true, the word of God. I had a different outlook to other police officers. Suddenly, instead of drinking pals, I was concerned about their life and their eternity. Witnesses and victims of crime, I gained a new empathy for them. And the last lot, I suppose, is the criminals. I actually had a new view of them 
and even though I could still do my job and uh, I was a tough bloke on the streets, don't worry about that, but I could now tell them about Jesus and be concerned about their future. Problems still happen, challenges still come in. Uh, you know, we're on a battleship, not a luxury liner, but anything that faces your life, God's promised as a Christian to equip you, to, to see you through it, and in fact to use it to his advantage. Come out of your old life, leave it behind, and turn and come with me. Just know what it's like to have your sin forgiven already and receive that free gift from him. And secondly, know the security and safety that when he comes back, you're ready. Gary Raymond, it's a privilege talking with you about your life and knowing you as well. I'm so glad you've joined us on Open House. Thank Thank you so much indeed. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.